like to introduce you to November 400 Mike Fox, one of four aircraft that I operated regularly from 1996 through 2000 as a missionary pilot in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. One of my first jobs in uh, January of 2000, or 1997 rather, was to put a bathroom on board this airplane. And so that was, I was a pilot and a mechanic, and so a normal week for me consisted of three or four days out of the week working on this aircraft or one of its three that were basically just like it, or flying this aircraft. And I would like to give you a maintenance tip for the proper operation of a DC-3 so that instantly you might be able to ascertain from a safe distance whether or not this aircraft is operating correctly and has the power that it needs to fly. This particular model of DC-3 was built in 1940. It's powered by a Wright engine that develops 1,200 horsepower uh, on takeoff, and there's two of them. So there's 2,400 horsepower on takeoff, allowing you to carry about 7,000 pounds of cargo. So obviously, uh, it's a powerful aircraft. It's a larger aircraft. And it's important that those motors are running at peak performance at takeoff. Here's how you tell the 400 Mike Fox is running appropriately powerfully at takeoff. When 400 Mike Fox has the carburetor properly adjusted on takeoff, at takeoff power, all of the levers are forward. Mixture prop throttle, go, 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 firewall, everything. The tail comes up, and right as you begin to go past 40 or 50 miles an hour down the runway, flames start to shoot out the exhaust stack of this aircraft. See, this is why it's okay for me to have a motorcycle. I got all of my horsepower issues figured out back in the 90s. Like, how happy and well-adjusted would your husband be if he got to fly something that shot flames out when it was operating appropriately? So flames are very important. The flames tell you that the ratio of fuel and air in each of the nine massive cylinders of this radial engine is the correct ratio of fuel to air. Because if there's not enough fuel going through the carburetor into the cylinders of this aircraft, at takeoff power, there's no flames. Which means all the fuel is being ignited inside of the cylinder, and the fuel does two things. Not only does it provide, does three things. Not only does it provide proper power by exploding properly, the proper amount of fuel also cools the cylinder head, which is important. So you have to have not just enough fuel to provide a proper flame front on the cylinder in each of the nine cylinders on this engine, you have to have enough fuel to cool the cylinder while you do it. There's no radiator on this aircraft. It's 100% air-cooled and cooled by a certain percentage of fuel during the explosion process. And finally, the mass of the hydrocarbons of the fuel increase the density of the mass in the cylinder momentarily, providing that 1,200 RPM that you need. So if you're burning all the fuel, you're not getting the cooling or the mass that you need in that cylinder. And you can tell because there's no flame coming out the, the exhaust stack. The flame coming out the exhaust stack is a measure of how much extra fuel was going through the cylinder. And when it hits the air of the atmosphere, it combusts and creates a flame. You need to see that flame or you're running too lean. Not enough power on takeoff and you might overheat the cylinder. If there's too much fuel on board, the flames will skip about four to eight inches before they ignite. They won't be attached to the exhaust stack. So the flame will appear longer than it's supposed to be, and there's a gap of air. Because there's so much fuel coming out of the cylinder heads after it goes to the exhaust manifold, 
that it takes time for the atmosphere to bring the proper amount of air into that hot gas to explode. No flame too lean. Too much or too long of a flame, too rich. You're not getting the power that you need. You're looking for about 12 to 16 inches of red, orange, and blue flame coming out of those beautiful exhaust stacks when that tail comes up. Some of you have never enjoyed a sermon more in your life. Some of you are like, oh dear God, when is this going to end? I tell you this because our tongues make our hearts transparent. Just the way you can tell the exact settings of a carburetor on the back of this nine-cylinder beautiful motor on this DC-3 by what the exhaust flames look like, our tongue perfectly transmits the contents of our hearts. Doesn't Jesus say that the very truth in the gospel when he says that out of our heart the mouth speaks? That's Jesus saying that your carburetor is exposed by the flame when the pressure's on. When the pressure's on in our lives, our hearts are 100% transparent through our words. Some of us are running a little lean, some of us are running, running a little rich, and some of us have found that place through grace and maturity where our words are just, they feel like a gift from God to those that listen to us. We've all experienced those moments, and they're amazing, and we want more of them. And so we're going to take a look at our text this morning in James chapter 3 as we continue our study of our temperaments and how our temperaments are best reflected through our words and exactly how does the tongue relate to the temperament or the temperature or the power that is being developed by our heart. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to James chapter 3. We're going to be taking a look at the first 12 verses and then really drilling deep uh, in verses 13 through 18 as we explore what James has to say about the power of the tongue and of course we're understanding how that impacts or is impacted by our temperaments this morning. Beginning in James chapter 3 verse 1. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man who is also able to control his whole body. If that exhaust flame is 12 to 16 inches long and the colors are the way that I described, we can guarantee that the motor, the magnetos, the spark plugs, the motor is running correctly. It is mature and stable. It is developing full power and it is evident by the flames shooting out of the exhaust. James says that not many of us should attempt these kinds of operations because those of us who teach, those of us who use our words, those of us who actually say, listen to me, i got something to explain to you, we will be subject to a stricter judgment. So, you know, if you ever think about pastors at all, there's probably two things that pop into your mind. Number one, what exactly do they do? And then if you actually think about that a little bit or interact with your pastor at all, and you find out a little bit of what they do during the week, then you say, I'm so glad I'm not a pastor. <laughs> and, and, and this verse would absolutely validate that. Not many of us should be teachers, my brothers and sisters, because we will be held to a stricter evaluation at the judgment because we actually stand up in front of people using our words, which are coming, of course, being filtered through our temperament and our hearts and our minds and our studies and saying, you should listen to this. And, and, and people 
people are being encouraged to follow the words that pastors say. And James says, not many of us should do that because who of us would say we use our words perfectly and have therefore exhibited perfect control and perfect maturity? None of us would say that. And so, yay that I'm not a pastor. Let me turn this around a little bit. He doesn't just, he's not just referring to pastors. He's saying not many of us should be teachers, my brothers and sisters. In the eyes of your children, what are you? You ever give instructions to your children? You ever say something like, hey, listen to me right now. In the eyes of our children, we're teachers. Have any authority or responsibility at the workplace ever had to train a new employee? Have you ever had to talk to someone who's new on the job site and say, hey, come over here, let me explain you for a minute. In the eyes of that new employee, we're teachers. And so this goes way beyond pastors, this warning, this exhortation, this understanding that those of us who are looked at as authorities, whether pastors or parents or employees or employers, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man who is able to control his whole body. And that exhaust plate is coming out of that stack perfectly. You don't have to worry about the carburetor. It is set correctly. If we never mess up in the words that we say, you don't have to worry about our hearts because our tongues perfectly, transparently show the content of our hearts. And all of us teach somebody something at some point. And so that's how James starts out by getting our attention, is that we need to understand that our, our tongues perfectly translate the content of our hearts, and all of us have a position of authority over somebody at some point in our life, and we need to be careful and take that seriously. James continues, how do we control the tongue is what he's going to talk about right now. Now, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal. And consider ships. Though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest, a small fire ignites, and the tongue is a fire. So he's describing a tongue, and by the way, I don't believe these words are on the screen. Passages to come will be. So if you have your Bibles, please do follow along. Because James is saying, you know, this is how the tongue operates, and he gives a number of very clear examples. We get it. Uh, if he wrote the book of James today, he would say, a car is controlled by a very small steering wheel at great speed. Small control inputs can make a big change in the direction of the car. And so we're familiar with this concept. And then he begins to really break it down about the nature of our tongue. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our body. It pollutes the whole body sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. Hey, James, could you be more clear? I'm a little fuzzy right now about exactly what the nature of our tongue and the temptation of our tongue. No, there's no clarity problems there. He's like, this is like Christian swearing right here. Like, when you're referring to the place, it's not a swear, which is what he's doing. And he's saying that our tongues are from there. AC double hockey stick. That's where our tongues are from. And it's, so think about the tongue this way. We all know that baseball is inherently boring. That the most exciting part about baseball is if you're someone like Kevin who understands the statistics and the history of each player and the teams and how they've interacted over time, then it becomes very interesting. 
But if you don't know any of that stuff and you're just watching these kind of overweight large guys not do much, it, it's kind of a boring sport. We all know what would make baseball more exciting. Take away their wooden bats, which have that very pleasant walk sound, and give them a metal bat, ping, like college ball. That would make the game much more exciting because we would be killing infielders almost every game. The acceleration of the ball off of the bat is incredibly more powerful than a wooden bat. Put a metal baseball bat in the hands of a major league ball player and watch the infield tower. The reason we use wooden bats is to preserve the lives of the players on the field, which makes it a boring game. Much more exciting if we were to ping and give them metal bats like we do college students. But we don't do that. The tongue is like a metal baseball bat in the mouth of a pastor. When you come to your pastor with a question, and he refers to the Word of God, he's not using a wooden baseball bat, he's using a metal baseball bat. That's what it feels like to you. Ping! Even though he's just swinging his tongue, even though he's just using his tongue the way he would any other time he's talking, for those of us who are sitting under the authority of a pastor, it feels like ping! The hearts of your children, when they come to you with a question and, you, and you're trying to provide guidance, we think we're just swinging a wooden baseball bat. I, when I talk to you, feel like I'm hearing from a wooden baseball bat, but not your children. Your children hear, ping! That's the power of the tongue. It has the power of leverage over the whole ship. It has the power to control the whole animal. And those of us who sit under our authority, our children, our pastorate, our, our employees, it's like we're wielding, it's like we're a major league ball player with a metal baseball bat. This is what James is saying. That is the power of the tongue. Oh, and by the way, it's set on fire by hell. It's like super powerful. And so it kind of leads to a question that if James feels this way about the tongue, every sea creature, reptile, bird, or animal is tamed and has been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We praise our Lord and Father with it, and we curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. Praising and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers, or can a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. We've all had the experience where we go to get a cup of coffee and we fill our cup halfway with hot water at River Church. What on earth is going on? I knew Jesus hated me from the day of my birth. Like, we're, when we're deceived by a spigot. This is how we feel. God's frustration with our tongues is the same way. Oh my goodness, Sunday morning you were lifting your voice in sweet worship to me and then what on earth happens? The Lord tries to get a cup of coffee from our tongue and it's just hot water. Cauldron. Which begs the question, if the Lord has given us metal baseball bats and we're like major league ball players, and if the control of our tongue is the indicator of the full maturity of our heart, and yet James says that we can tame every single animal that's on the planet and control them, we can steer great ships that even fly through the air now through rudders. But no man can tame the tongue because it's lit on fire by hell. Why did you give it to me? Like, why? And why doesn't James why doesn't James go on to say, and hence the importance of a biblical muscle, the Jesus muscle, available at any local church? Because honestly, you'll never control your tongue. It's the most hellish thing about you. 
And so just muzzle your face, every Christian you know, by the muzzle that they wear, because it's, in, it's an intractable foe. Why does he advocate cutting the thing out? Why does he just say, you're never going to cure this thing? You're never going to... Trying to fix our tongue is like beating on the exhaust of a DC-3 trying to get the right mixture in the carburetor. You can wang on the exhaust stack all day long. It's not going to change the flame. And this is what James is going to say about the tongue. See, this is why he says, don't worry about muzzles. This is why he doesn't say, cut your tongue out. He doesn't leave us in a hopeless position. But he's absolutely trying to paint the severity of the power of the tongue, and then he's going to link it directly to our heart, because we're not going to adjust our tongue. We're going to talk about that in depth. We're going to adjust our heart. See, the flame's not coming out right, but there's too much flame, or it's the wrong color, and we're not developing full power under pressure at takeoff. We don't feed on the exhaust system. Not the exhaust system's fault. It's doing what it's designed to do. The tongue is designed to perfectly replicate what's in our heart. The, the tongue is set on fire by hell itself, but all it's doing is telling a message that's coming from the inside. It's coming from our heart. Because from the depths of our heart, our mouth speaks. And life and death reside in the power of the tongue. And the tongue perfectly reflects our heart. Don't feed on the exhaust system. Don't cut your tongue out. Work on the carburetor. Work on the heart. James continues to say in James chapter 3, verse 13, after giving us this intractable foe that we can't fix, who is wise and has understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. In the words of our, of our study that we're doing, of the illustration that has been accompanying us for the past few weeks, and the illustration and the idea that we're exploring in our small group personally is that we're each created with a temperament from God. Some of us are wired to be geared towards people and fun. Some of us are wired towards power and control. Some of us are wired towards perfection and order. Some of us are wired towards calm and harmony and peace. And this is the way that the Lord has designed us. But when we do not control our tongues, when we simply apply earthly wisdom, which this passage says is demonic, it's like we're just letting our temperament have full control. And, and in the moment of pressure, in the moment of anger, in the moment of frustration, in the moment when our needs are not being met, like we talked about last week, we each have different ways of having our emotional needs met that are filtered through our temperament. Some of us need time with people. Some of us need time away from people. Some of us need time with a job to do. Some of us think people are way more important than any job that we're currently doing. And if those needs are not being met in our life, then what happens is natural wisdom takes over, our temperament can take over, and it leads to fighting styles, I guess, in, in the words of this study. That when we are experiencing too lean or too rich, when we're not being mature in our tongue, in our use of our tongue, and our hearts are not mature, because this is a hard issue. James says, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and deny the truth. It's evident from the words that we're using coming through the filter that we know of as our temperament. Here's some examples of how it looks like 
when our emotional needs are not being met according to our temperament. For those of us that are yellow or sanguine or people in fun temperament, that's the heavenly wisdom side of our personality. That's the heavenly wisdom side of us. When we are enjoying times with people and we're having high-energy events with people and engaging with people and spending time with people, it feels like the grace of God has entered into the situation. When our need for approval is not being met, that people don't accept us for who we are as the spark plug at the party, the high-energy person at the party, the person... When people are frustrated with us because we forget the task, because we prioritize the person and we lose their approval, we then see a fuller application of our natural wisdom, an extreme application of our temperament, and when we try to manipulate situations to have our emotional needs met, if we're yellow, if we're sanguine, if we're this type of temperament, then we resort to charm and flattery. You see how this works? When you remove God's wisdom and God's maturity from our God-given temperament, it becomes an excess of our temperament because now God has left the scene. We are not opening ourselves up to God's wisdom. We're just letting our mouths run. And for a person with this temperament, they're going to try and manipulate or control the situation through charm and flattery, excessive charm and flattery. They're trying to control us by being way too nice to us. Have you ever had that happen to you? Where <laughs> someone is being way too nice to you and it just creeps you out? It might be because this person is not having their needs for approval or their other innate needs being met in a particular situation, and they're just they're just defaulting to their natural hardwiring, their natural temperament. They're not applying the wisdom of God in their life at all. For someone who is wired with red, the power and control, the Polaris temperament, it's no surprise to you if you spent 45 seconds in my presence that when uh, my emotional need for, let's say, like something like loyalty, or I feel like I'm being abandoned, or a person with power and control temperament is abandoned, or left on their own, or, 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 or someone stabs them in the back, tone and volume is how, is my natural default setting. I'll just in, automatically increase my volume, and my tone can become very cutting and very hurtful. Uh, and I share that in common with other folks that are wired with strong choleric or red temperament styles. When our emotional need for loyalty is not being met, we can get very uh, loud and very hurtful with our words. We're not going to try and charm and flatter you. <laughs> We're just going to come right at you. That, 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 that temperament. It's, it's too much power and control. There's no filter of God's wisdom there at all. It's all earthly wisdom, which James says is of the devil. For those of us who are phlegmatic or the green temperament, calm and harmony, when our need for respect is not being met because we're being overlooked, we're, we, we have wonderful ideas. Those of us with a green temperament, the green temperaments are the common sense, the calm and the harmony, the peacemakers. They have fantastic ideas, but they're the last person to put those ideas out there. And so they're very easy to be disrespected and overlooked. And when someone with this temperament is feeling disrespected and overlooked, uh, it's very simple for them to have too much of their temperament, which is calm and peace and harmony, and now it looks like stubbornness and refusal to move. They become obstinate, stuck in the mud, procrastination and stubbornness. You see, it's too much calm. They're perfectly calm. There's no movement now. Because they feel disrespected with someone who has a red temperament. There's too much power and control, and it's depressed in volume and tone. For someone with a yellow temperament, it's too
too much charm and flattery. The life of the party now just took the whole thing over. It's too much because certain needs were not being met. And finally, for those of us with the melancholic or blue temperament, perfection and order is how the Lord has blessed those of us with the blue temperament to be organized, to be well thought out, uh, task-oriented, introvert. That there's a need for those of us with a blue temperament to feel supported, that someone is actually paying attention to us. Because again, those of us with a blue temperament are not really drawing attention to ourselves. We're more of an introvert. But we're doing important things. And if no one is paying attention and no one is supporting us in the effort of the things that we're trying to accomplish in a quiet way, well, what happens is too much blue begins to show up in moodiness and silence. And we've experienced that too. You walk into a room, you walk into a situation, you walk back into a relationship after a week off or whatever, or a weekend off, and now someone is either very, very moody or very, very silent. Like, that's not good. Um, And you know something's not good. Probably because they're having an emotional need. They don't feel supported. They don't feel cared for. They don't feel like anyone is paying attention to anything that matters right now. And so what the Bible is saying is that it's very easy for us, through our tongues, to default to our natural wisdom, which according to our study would say, too much of a good thing. The Lord wired us in a certain way, but if we don't filter it through God's wisdom, uh, it, it can come through inappropriately. And James actually calls it for what it is. It is earthly, it is unspiritual, it is demonic. And it leaves us in a position where, you know, we go through a study like this and we take a look at our temperaments and it's there's some really practical takeaways and you're probably thinking of your own examples of situations that you walked in and you're like, that's why they were all silent on me. Or that's why he blew up the second I walked into the room. Or that's why I can't get anything out of that employee. Or that's why I can't get that person to stop talking. It's that you, now we're beginning to understand that there's some emotional needs that are not being met and we're getting very practical with the kinds of things that we can do to fix the situation. But here's one of the main ideas in the book of James, and we need to be careful not to go down this road of just, well, I will just try harder. The next time, you know, my wife gives me the silent treatment, I will try to blah, blah, blah. That's not a bad thing. But don't think for a second that that is what James is saying is the ultimate fix. It's like beating on the exhaust back because you want a different color glass. You're paying attention to the problem, and you see there's a problem, but make the right fix. And sometimes the right fix isn't necessarily trying harder. When I was little, there was a a high degree of cussing going around in my family, my friends, and my peer group. And in about third grade, I decided to make a decision regarding whether or not I was going to swear. And so, because... I've always struggled with anger. Anger is part of a choleric temperament. Anger is part of a red temperament. Passion is about getting things done in a certain way. So I've always struggled with anger. And I needed to answer the question, am I going to vent or express or release some of my anger by vulgar use of my tongue? Because honestly, there's a bit of it going around and it seems to work for people. So I went down into the basement, about nine years old, Now, the F word wasn't really a part of my childhood, so I didn't say boo-boo. I didn't, that really wasn't a part of my cussing experience in third grade. But there was a lot of S words. And so I went down in the basement and I said, Super Sugar Smash! 
super sugar that's smacked right out of your sugar smack. In every possible iteration of super sugar smack, I I spent 5, 10, 15, 34 hours until I had every iteration of super sugar smack. I tried it and everything you can smell the smack the sugar right out of your super. I mean, I tried it all. Is this a way that I can deal with my anger? Seems to work for a number of people. And I don't know, in a moment of clarity, maybe because I was so thorough, shocker, if you know me, I tried it all. I, I, I was like, man, super sugar smacking just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. That didn't help with my... Because here's what I learned. Just, just because... And so I haven't sworn since. I, I don't swear. It's not a thing that I do. I make up goofy words. I express my frustration in other ways. One of my favorite adopted swear words now, I like to swear in foreign languages, which is a lot of fun, using innocuous words like schmiefachheit, which means coin-operated locker. That is a great swear word. I love schmiefachheit. And so that will slip off my tongue when I'm irritated or frustrated, but it's, it's a coin-operated locker. It's not an actual swear. Did you know that not swearing doesn't actually help your anger issues? Just the fact that I'm not vulgar doesn't fix the anger that I feel in my heart. Did you know that? So yay for God for trying harder, and I developed a good habit. I actually don't cuss. Never once. Not since third grade. Not once. Never happened. You can step on my toes. You can smash me in the car. It won't come out of my mouth. I will call you a coin-operated locker. But it doesn't fix the anger that's in my heart. Here's what James is saying in the book of James. It's... Trying harder is good. Yay for you. Try harder. Absolutely. You know, in these situations where there's too much of our temperament or we're experiencing too much of somebody else's temperament, be wise, be smart, be clever. Try harder. But here's what James is not saying. That trying hard is heart transformation. James is not saying that trying hard is heart transformation. James is not saying that being wiser, that being better at being wiser is heart transformation. You can beat on the exhaust track all day long. It won't change the color of the flame. You actually have to adjust your carburetor. That's a completely different process. Probably not qualified to do it. I'm barely qualified to do it. And honestly, I've forgotten how to do it. I just got there with you beating on the exhaust manifold right now. So what is James saying? James is not saying that trying hard is heart transformation. He's saying that heart transformation is heart transformation. Listen to what he says here in James chapter 3, picking it up in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. James is saying that heavenly wisdom will fix our hearts. That's still kind of an esoteric concept. And so let me make it very, very practical for us and, and, and more memorable and then link it with another powerful passage in James. And Vince, I'm wrapping up our time together this morning. Let me read this verse again with a substitution. James writes, But the wisdom from above, well, who, who emulates that wisdom from above? If, if we just had to pick one person that we know would emulate wisdom from above. You would probably be in agreement this morning, even if you weren't a Christian, that, well, Jesus emulates. 
But Jesus is first pure. You see, it's easier for me to desire Jesus than it is something esoteric like wisdom. I don't feel like being wise in the moment that I'm trying to super sure smack somebody. But Jesus is pure. That helps. Jesus is peace loving. Jesus is gentle. He's compliant, full of mercy. He comes bearing good fruits, and he has no favoritism. He has no hypocrisy. And when I remember that that's the way he's treated me, it makes it easier for me to be excited about heavenly wisdom. And so crying out to Jesus is what I am saying. It's a real good way of crying out for heavenly wisdom. And finally this morning, in our process of crying out, James says that that's exactly what we're supposed to do in James chapter 1, verse 5. Now, if any of you lack wisdom, and we know he's talking about heavenly wisdom, if any of you have the superabundance of your temperament coming across as charm and flattery, tone and volume, stubbornness and procrastination, moody silence, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. And he continues, but let him ask in faith without doubt. What is James saying this morning? He's saying that the tongue is an irascible, intractable foe. We're never going to conquer it, and yet our goal as a, a man or a woman of faith is to be the kind of teacher that can stand in front of people with a pure heart and, and, and encourage people with our words. Or the, the mom or the dad that can stand in front of our children and, and, we, and, and, we, and we can love on them, knowing that we're sharing with them heavenly wisdom. Because that's something that is all very real to us. What James is saying is that when it comes to asking for wisdom, when it comes to asking for Jesus' presence in our lives, because He is pure, peaceful, gentle, compliant, merciful, with good fruit, with no favoritism, and He's not a hypocrite, that when it comes to asking for that, our job is to ask without wavering. I love the way some translations say it. My translation says, but let him ask in faith without doubting. Some translations say, but let us ask in faith without wavering. Let us ask unwavering, because unwavering in matters of faith is life. When it comes down to heavenly wisdom, our attitude is to unwaveringly place our faith in Jesus because of the qualities that he brings, the wisdom into our lives. That in that moment of frustration, when the pressure and the heat is on, and we're running lean, or we're running rich, or we're not running right, and things are starting to pop and sizzle, that aren't supposed to pop and sizzle, there's an excess of our temperament. That when we cry out to Jesus unwaveringly, in this moment, even though I don't deserve it, the text says that he comes without critique or criticism. Why wouldn't I come when you call, especially in the moment of your need? That our job is to take an unwavering approach to faith. That the wisest thing we can do is not waver in our faith, but to remain firm in our commitment to Jesus, even when we feel like we should be criticized for an excess of our temperament. And so for some of us this morning, maybe we've never thought about salvation as an unwavering commitment of faith. That on good days and on bad days, on days that start out sunny, and then it rains, and then it's sunny again, 
wavering in our faith. On days when we have our temperament and it's clicking well and it's heavenly wisdom is flowing, it feels like words of grace are just flowing out of our tongue. And on days where it feels like an excess of our temperament and like they're actually speaking to the devil through us, that our faith remains unwavering because that is God's posture towards us. If that has struck your heart in a new way this morning, whatever it is, the simple prayer is like this. Heavenly Father, I am blessed, I am right, I am up, I am down, I am acting according to my temperament in a wise way, I'm acting according to my temperament in an unwise way. I have decided today to be unwavering in my commitment of faith to you. Would you adopt me as your son? Would you adopt me as your daughter? Would you fill my life with your heavenly wisdom and save me and teach me how to speak words of grace and mercy? For some of us who have been Christians for quite some time, it's refreshing to be reminded that our faith simply needs to be unwavering. That when we approach our Savior in a time of need because we have failed our own expectations, that there is no critique coming from Him. The passage says that He will instead pour His wisdom into our lives so that our words can be gracious and merciful to those who hear. That we can be that teacher who has perfect control of our lives because we've given control of our life to Jesus. Heavenly wisdom. Would you join me at this time? Heavenly Father, thank you for the guidance in your word this morning. James wrote some really difficult things about our tongue, and it is a part of our body. It is representing our heart. And Father, there are times we are so ashamed of how we have used our tongue. We have not represented you or ourselves well. We've seen the look of hurt and pain in the eyes of our loved ones and our employees and our fellow students. And Father, we are so sorry for those times. We understand this morning that that is just an excess of our temperament, that we did not apply any heavenly wisdom. We wavered in our faith. But Father, we pray this morning that you would find us consistently seeking you, that we would never be ashamed of turning towards you because you meet us without criticism or critique. You just provide wisdom for those who approach you in faith. Father, I pray that for these people that are here today, that you would give us words that sound like grace 